Ecclesiastes chapter 5. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that they're doing evil. Do not be rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God, for God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. For a dream comes with much busyness and a fool's voice with many words. When you vow a vow to God, do not delay paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Let not your mouth lead you into sin, and do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Why would God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? For when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity. But God is the one you must fear. Uh, We ended our study last time in chapter 4 with the vanity of worldly acclaim. You know, that under the sun, man-centered, humanistic view of life, where men think that that worldly applause will provide satisfaction for their soul. Um, That is not the case. Solomon says this too is vanity in in striving after wind. True satisfaction, as we've learned, it does not come from riches. It does not come from success or from fame. Um, Although we hear these words, we don't always believe them, especially young people. When you tell them there is no satisfaction in fame and fortune... They just don't believe it because the world is um, so very entrancing. And it's only for most of us that we learn this uh, by way of sorrow after sorrow, unfortunately. And that, Koaleth tells us, is chasing after the wind. Fame, popular recognition, they're all fleeting because they're based on the fickle feelings and the fickle thinking of fallen, finite men. Also, we saw that uh, this kind of thinking shows up everywhere. It shows up in politics. It shows up in the workplace. It shows up in church life. And it also shows up um, in many pastors in wanting to be men-pleasers. So they move away from teaching the whole counsel of God. They uh, go to doctrine light so as to um, draw um, larger crowds. So they, not unlike the general public, are affected, and they in turn also, they become man-pleasers. And then God's word is not heard. God's true word, the whole counsel of God, is not heard because they go doctrine light. So the general message there uh, was that uh, we do not live for the praise of others. We live before the audience of one, as many have said. So next, um, here's a shift in subject matter in verses 1 through 7. And this is a warning about being casual with God. Uh, This is treating God as though he were our equal. Now, uh, in contemporary terms, um, it's as though we view God as our buddy. You know, a pal. And not holy, holy, holy. Uh, We live in a very casual culture. 
And that's not all bad. No doubt that's not all bad. Some aspects to a casual culture are somewhat good, but there are many dangers as well. And here, there is a danger that we forget that God is holy and majestic. He's in heaven and we are on earth, is the preacher king says here. And as we read through scripture, anyone who's ever been given a glimpse of his glory, what were they struck with? Fear, terror, fright. Look at Isaiah chapter 2, verse 10. Enter into the rock and hide in the dust from before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of his majesty. So the preacher king, he's pointing out um, the vanity of formalism in worship. Formalism is, is one aspect of that which he's pointing out. So this is a war- word of warning, not merely for those who dwell under the sun, that is with a naturalistic, humanistic point of view or worldview, but those that actually have an above the sun, under heaven, theocentric worldview. And the words here, they're razor sharp. Did you notice that? They're razor sharp. They're very convicting. Because, you know, vanities in life are bad enough when one dwells under the sun. And they're much worse when we bring those types of of thinking into the house of the Lord as a believing people. So there's three parts to the warning here. And he begins that when you come into the house of God... First and foremost, he says, come prepared to hear. To hear. Verse 1, guard your steps. When you go to the house of God, to draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that they're doing evil. He says, watch your step. You know, we say to one another, you know, both physically and metaphorically, to watch your step. I told my wife as we're walking yesterday morning to the bank to watch her step. Is you know there was a step up coming. We were looking at each other, talking. Watch your step. We also use it metaphorically. That is, think about what you're doing. Think about it. And he's talking about those who do go into the place of worship where they regularly join together with God's people to offer praise, glory, and worship of the one true God. And the context here, of course, would be uh, the temple in Jerusalem. It's the original context that we're looking at. So, uh, very applicable um, to us to this very day, as is the entire word of God. And he says here, be more ready to hear than to give the sacrifice of a fool. As it, the gathering together of the saints, is the place where God's word is to be heard, to be read, to be taught, and preached. This is the place where God's word is proclaimed. Therefore, he says, come to listen. And listen means to obey. It means to hear and then, and then carry out that which has been heard. It means to, to hear and to heed. As opposed to the sacrifice of a fool. So in context here, this would be uh, to bring a burnt offering or to bring a, a thank offering that is brought by a fool. These are sacrifices that are ordained by God. 
God designed it for Old Testament Israel. And then they lose their meaning when they're brought by a hypocrite. Or we could call it a formalist. A formalist. And the writer says that he is a fool. So this would be one, I suppose, who sees worship as forms. Worship is a set of forms, of words and actions and reactions. This is the form of a formalist, who in his liturgy, the order of service, in his liturgy, he acts at the right moments, he says the right things at the right times, and he responds also with the right words, but it's, for, it's merely formalistic. It's an empty liturgy. This is rote repetition. So they think of worship as is, is ceremonial form. You, know, you go in, it's call and respond. Whatever the words are. There's no engaged activity whatsoever with the mind and the heart. Isaiah in chapter 1 says this, bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. It's the Lord speaking through Isaiah. New moons and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feasts, my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I'm weary of bearing them. So they're, they're fools because they engage their bodies and not their hearts. They engage their lips and even their hands, but not their mind and their will. They do not know, the writer says, that they're doing evil. So that is, they would bring a spotless lamb, slit its throat, offer it up without any inner engagement. Their heart's a mile away. You know, Saul, the first king of Israel, remember he was commanded by God, through the prophet, to utterly destroy the Amalekites. Remember that? But instead, 1 Samuel 15, 21, he spares Agag. Then Samuel would cut him into pieces eventually. They, they spare Agag and sheep and oxen. The scripture says the best of the things devoted to destruction to sacrifice to the Lord. So all these best animals... They spared, though God says, slaughter them all. They spare them because they're going to offer them up to God. Samuel, 1 Samuel 15, 22. Samuel said, has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifice, sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, to listen than the fat of rams. So the, the Lord's priority is that we come to hear, so as to what? To obey. So this is just as serious a warning to those who profess Christ among God's people today. You know, how often do we sing songs? We sing hymns. We, we go through the motions. We gather here today. This is what we'll do. We'll worship. And yet we're, offer, we're offering the sacrifice of a fool. Because we're not listening. You know, some people in our day and culture hate 
having to engage their mind so as to really listen and follow along in like biblical exposition. You really have to pay attention. But are so enamored with being entertained because that's all we receive out here. We expect it should be the same in the church. So we don't even know how to listen. Many. The foremost thought of our mind on the Lord's Day, it ought to be what? To worship, and we, we begin by hearing. We begin by listening to the Word of God. So he says, guard your steps, consider what you're doing as you draw near on the house of God. You know, we gather at Pacific Hope Church to pray, to preach, to hear God's Word. We, we pray it, we preach it, we read it, and we want to make it heard. There are those um, in churches throughout here, the Fruited Plain, who attend and merely recite creeds and confessions. And again, it's really an individual thing. You can, you can repeat, repeat very beautiful prayers or certain liturgies, you know, call and response and so on, and be fully engaged in your heart, or you can become totally detached from that which um, one is doing in, in the order of service. We're all guilty of that at some point in time, amen? You'll hear in the message today, you'll be encouraged by this, because uh, in, the, in the sermon today, we see um, how God had the high priest in place so as to take uh, the, the um, unholy things of the people and make them holy. And the Holy Spirit does that today through the mediatorial work of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? So you'll be encouraged. This isn't tear down only. You just have to wait for the next hour to be built up because we're all guilty of that, and praise God that we have uh, an intercessor. Amen? Whoever lives to intercede for us, which he, he means he ever lives to rightly represent us before the Father. That's what intercession is. It's, it's representation. It's to represent. He's representing you. You're no longer in the first Adam. You're now in the second Adam. And he always lives to represent you before the Father. So you can rest in him. But nevertheless, because we rest in him, we ought not to come flippant, but flippantly. We ought to engage all that much more. Amen? So, how do we hear? Now, there are ways that are deceptive um, in hearing and one great example is in that prophetic voice of Ezekiel, that exquisite preacher. If you look at Ezekiel um, chapter 30, is it up there? There you go. Oh, wait a minute. Yeah, 33. As for you, son of man, your people who talk together about you by the walls and the doors of the houses, say to one another, each to his brother, come and hear what the word is that comes from the Lord. And they come to you as people come and they sit before you as my people and they hear what you say, but they will not do it. For with lustful talk in their mouths, they act. Their heart is set on their gain and behold, you are to them like one who sings lustful songs with a beautiful voice and plays well on an instrument, for they hear what you say, but they will not do it. So to them, it's going to hear a very eloquent speaker. 
a very poetic voice. This is a symphonic sound to their ears. It's a pleasant experience to them, but the deception is they won't do what they hear. Not long ago, after preaching at a funeral uh, with many unbelievers, um, a woman said to me, who was an unbeliever, you spoke very well, and you made a very convincing argument about Jesus as being the only way. And that's it. (laughs) It apparently ended there. You know, church people who, who have sloppy, careless attendance... Um, they'll say when they come and they hear the word of God, wow, I was re- this is a true story, this happened. I was really convicted that I'm neglecting to serve the body of Christ by not being here regularly. Came for two weeks, and now their attendance is as bad as it was before. It's just back to the same thing. Today, in this age of technology, Christians can download world-class preachers whenever they want. So they'll listen to 10 sermons a week. They listen to these incredible communicators. They tune in. They, they download. They're lifted up in their car, somehow, way, And then they never do what they're instructed to do. It's faulty hearing. They don't realize verse 1. That they're doing evil. Another danger amongst uh, professing believers is that they only want to hear what pleases them. Look at the warning that uh, Paul gives uh, to Timothy. I charge you in the presence of God in Christ Jesus, who is the judge of the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. This is word to the preacher. Preach it. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. But have itching ears. They will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. They'll turn away from listening to the truth. And they'll wander off into myths. So they're going to seek out preachers who preach what they want to hear, those who please them and will support their worldly lifestyle. And they want a motivational speech mixed with entertainment. So they go out to find them. That is, they accumulate for themselves, these teachers. And as they accumulate them, it draws in more people. And they hear what they want to hear. Others who are perhaps much more reformed in their doctrine will perhaps only want to hear preaching on you know, justification by faith. Just tell me how forgiven I am and how much Jesus loves me. Nothing wrong with that. And that should be part of any preacher's preaching. But a preacher who preaches that along with God's sovereignty, his justice, sin, damnation, repentance, and obedience, they'll turn a deaf ear. Has the day changed since the day of Ezekiel? No. So although there are comparable words in Scripture about our approach to God, I don't believe there are, there are any that are stronger than this. Ecclesiastes chapter 5. 
Another danger, verse 1, that is as regards hearing, I think shows up in God's people when they show extreme concern over one particular topic. That is, you'll meet people who ride a particular hobby horse. That is, they have one doctrine in view. It's the king doctrine. And and all they want to focus on is that specific doctrine. So when a matter uh, or an issue comes up, and and this becomes their hobby horse, their their pet topic, the the bee in their bonnet, as they used to say, um, oftentimes it shows up by way of doctrine so as to ignore the others so that they don't have to feel any conviction as regards the rest of their life. This this one doctrine. It's, it's the main gear of the gear housing, right? The one that's motorized. It's the only one that they focus on, but there's all kinds of other gears behind the gear housing. And they all serve a purpose. And they ignore all the other gears by the one drive gear behind the housing. And oftentimes it can be used as an unconscious screen uh, as regards facing others, other issues in one's own life. I mean, it happens. <laughs> Just trust me. So it's almost as though they're calling God's attention to this one area of doctrine. Perhaps they take on a martyr complex. And they have some passionate focus on perhaps a particular error um, that is obvious in the church today or a problem in the world or a problem in culture. And this is the drum that they beat. So they can't hear anything else. Does that make sense? That's another way it shows up. It's their hobby horse. Beware of hobby horses. And next, there's a warning against hastiness and long-windedness in prayer. First warning has to do with how we hear. The second is what we say. So the preacher king says to those who enter into God's presence casually or lightly to think about what you say before you say it. Verse 2, be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter the word before God, to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven, you're on earth, therefore let your words be few. This depicts those who are very verbose, like to speak many words for the sake of speaking many words. Be not hasty in addressing the one true God of Israel. He says, don't be rash with your mouth. Synonymous terms, hasty and rash. And they serve as a reminder to to simply be thoughtful before you pray. Think about what you say before you're going to say it. He says here, because you need to realize who you're addressing. He's in heaven. You, we, we're on earth. We're tiny specks. Creatures. He is our creator. He is our redeemer. So in view of God's majesty and our lowliness, our words ought to be few. So we should address him with due reverence, not with presumption, and certainly not with demands, like the health, wealth, and prosperity people. You just tell God what you want. You just, it's just so long as you say in the name of Jesus. <laughs> Right? I command in the name of Jesus. Dude, what you just prayed is totally contrary to the revealed will of God in the Bible. You're demanding? It's just empty chatter. So we're not to babble in unthinking ways before the Lord. 
Now, this does not mean that we ought to pray only a little. Amen? After all, Jesus himself spent all night in prayer. He prayed continually. So this, obviously, is to be balanced with the rest of Scripture, beloved, and that we are also called to pray without ceasing, to be God-conscious all the time. So our prayers are to be thought out. They're to be focused, not empty chatter. Let your words be few. You know, I don't need to give God information when I'm praying. You know, Lord, I was talking to Joe yesterday, and Joe did this, and he went there, and he did that, and he said this, and he said that, and now I'm going to pray whatever I pray. This should not be hasty, thoughtless, verbosity, wordiness. And you know, Jesus actually provides commentary on this, doesn't he? In the Sermon on the Mount, chapter 6, Matthew, verse 7, he says, When you pray, do not heap up empty phrases. As the Gentiles do, they think they'll be heard for their many words. So, do you not hear the words of Ecclesiastes there? (laughs) The words of our Lord Jesus Christ? In other words, God's not going to be won over to our point of view by beseeching him with babble. He's not. Pagans believe that, that countless words were a kind of magical formula, so long as you uttered them over and over and over again. And then they would be be, um, effective upon their little God to get them to cry uncle or to, you know, tap out. Tap out is a term in the fighting world. If a guy gets your arm pinned behind your back and he's about ready to break it, you, you tap out. It means you give up. And their little gods thought would finally give up and answer their prayers by their many, many words. Magical power over their little gods by being verbose, wordy. Notice verse 8, chapter 6, Matthew. Do not be like them, said Jesus, for your father knows what you need before you ask him. So Jesus' command here, do not be like the heathen, doesn't mean don't pray because God knows everything. Because Jesus goes on in that same sermon, he says, when you pray, pray like this, what? Our Father. So there's intimacy. The paternal love of Almighty God. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. On earth as it is in heaven. Then give us this day our daily bread. You know, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Lead us not into temptation. Deliver us from the evil one. For thine is the power and the kingdom and the glory. And he goes on. This is how you shall pray. So that's a great model. That's a great outline for us to pray. We begin with the praises of God. Hallowed be thy name, Lord. You know, we go on, Lord, may your will be done in and through your church. You know, may your word be declared in and through those who declare your word. May your people be strengthened. May they be encouraged. Lord, we pray you'll provide according to your grace, according to your wisdom, and so on. Because a loving father knows what we need, is the point Jesus makes. Your loving father, he loves you. He redeemed you. He cares for you, so he knows what you need. And many times, you don't even know what to pray because you don't know exactly what you need. So praise God, the Holy Spirit intercedes for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. You ever do that? You cry. Sometimes I pray, I'm like, and I think about this person, I'm like, Lord, 
God, please. And I don't know what to say. And then I know that the Holy Spirit is taking all that that's in there and he brings it into the presence of the Lord and it all makes sense. So that shows um, his, his union with us and communion with us by the resident presence of the Holy Spirit and, and our mediator who stands before the Father, Jesus Christ. It's a triune work of the Lord on our behalf. So your Father knows. He cares for you. You don't need a magical formula of Babel like the pagans, what he's saying. In other words, longer prayers aren't necessarily more godly prayers. Amen? We can be succinct. We can be precise um, in our praying. Charles Bridges said this, quote, The fewness of words is not the main concern, but whether they be words of the heart. So when we enter into the house of the Lord, when we spend time with the Lord, okay, we listen number one, so as to be transformed by the renewing of our, of our minds and not conform to this world. So we have to listen. And the more we listen, and we're listening to truth, we reflect on that truth, and then our prayers become very biblical. We start to pray more biblically. It's kind of like a child. My kids... <laughs> We used to go around to family prayer and the kids were small. And you have to disciple them because they'll always pray, Lord, I pray I'll have a good day. <laughs> right, amen? Nothing wrong with that. I mean, I want to have a good day. <laughs> amen? But the more we listen and hear God's word, the more we will pray biblically. It'll be much more rounded out. <laughs> kids are all, I love listening to kids pray. It's beautiful, isn't it? Um, no, notice next... Um, Coleth now compares the words of a fool to the jumble of dreams. Verse 3. This is a, prover- a, per- a proverbial truth. Here's a pithy little saying. It's a proverb. For a dream comes with much business and a fool's voice with many words. You know, often when you go to, to bed at night, you have many things on your mind. Amen? Many turmoils in life. A lot of stresses in life. A lot of things we're concerned about. A lot of things we're anxious about. And we have dreams. And dreams can be very weird. Right? You ever wake up in the middle of the night, you write something, you have a dream, you write it down, you think it's this brilliant insight. You wake up the next morning and it's, this is just jumble. This is, it it makes no sense whatsoever. But at 2.37 in the morning, in the dark, and you don't even have your glasses to write anything down. It makes no sense the next day. Problem is, far too many Christians in our day live their lives according to the nonsense they dream, and it actually becomes the doctrine of their life. It's ridiculous. They are the fools who are filled with the jumble of dreams. So he compares the words of a fool to dreams. They're nonsensical, silly, and absurd. So here, the Lord won't be under the Lord won't be won over superstitiously any more than he will by the words that are similar to that of a pagan or the heathen. Some people think they become a divine code breaker. 
Because, oh, I had this dream. God spoke to me, and now it, it unlocks some mystery somewhere. <laughs> okay, God did that in the Old Covenant. We have, we're under the New Covenant now. Christ has come. All the things that pointed to him, he is their very fulfillment. He ascended and he descended by way of the Holy Spirit, who's given us the ability to believe. He's regenerated. He's our hearts. He's opened our eyes to see and believe the truth of Scripture. So now we test everything in light of the Scripture, including our dreams. Amen. Notice also, um, fools offer sacrifices okay, w- without living a life that corresponds to that which they promise to give to God. Verse 4, when you vow a vow to God, do not delay paying it. He has no pleasure in fools. You see how many times they mention fool. A fool in how he listens. A fool in how he speaks. A fool in what he vows to give. I'm glad the word says fool, because I like using the word fool. Having been a great fool, and oftentimes still, even as a regenerate sinner saved by grace, still are sometimes very foolish. So I include myself, but this is a whole other category of fool. And the words here are directed to fools who, who make rash vows and promises. This is the foxhole conversion guy. You know what a foxhole is, right? You're at war, you, build a, you, you dig a hole, you line it to protect you. It's called a foxhole. And you're in there with your fellow soldiers and bullets are flying over your head. And you say, Lord God, get me out of here. Oh, Lord, spare me from the enemy's attack. And I promise when I get out of this war, I'll go back home and be a missionary. Or whatever. Never fulfill it. People find themselves in trouble. They cry out to God. They get locked up, thrown in jail, prison, prison house, conversions. Oh, Lord, get me out of this thing and, you know, I'll serve you the rest of my life. Everything that Mama taught me about the Bible... And about Jesus, I'll do it, Lord. Never do it. Never do it. They get out of their mess. Or, Lord, I, I, I promise, if you bless me with more money, I'll, I'll tithe. Right. If you don't tithe now, you're not going to tithe then. Period. So many people have made these kind of vows. Probably all of us at one time or another have made certain vows to God. But God is not a delivery man who forgets what we say. Amen? He does not deliver on command. He's not a genie that pops out of a bottle. And that's actually mocking God, these kinds of vows. So it's no light thing. Um, If you do that, um, you ought to quickly repent of that. Jesus told a a parable very similar um, to to rash vows. He said this um, in Matthew 21. What do you think? Think about Jesus preaching like this. What do you think? A man had two sons, and he went off, and and he went to the first, and he said, Son, go and work in the vineyard today. And he answered, I will not. But afterward, he changed his mind, and he went. And he went to the other son and said the same, and, and he answered, I go, sir. But he did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? You know, promptly following through on our commitments... Um, it's an important part of godliness, of being a Christian. And, and notice, this is when you make a vow. You know, there's, there's nothing, uh, there's no mandate, like in the Old Covenant, about, about making vows. It says, when you vow, follow through. 
Deuteronomy 23, verse 21. Old Covenant Israel, here's the instruction. If you make a vow, okay, if you make a vow to the Lord your God, you shall not delay fulfilling it, for the Lord your God will surely require it of you, and you will be guilty of sin. But if you refrain from vowing, you will not be guilty of sin. You shall be careful to do what has passed your lips, for you have voluntarily vowed to the Lord your God what you have promised with your mouth. And there again is the mouth to get us into all kinds of trouble. That tongue, boy, huh? It's gotten me into more mischief. Christian or non-Christian, both. Amen? So the preacher king says, in essence, don't play games with God. If you, if you promise it, pay it. Don't play. He is not to be trifled with. Again, he's in heaven. You? You're on earth. You're made in his image. He's not made in yours. Amen? Um, now, the Bible assumes, of course, beloved, that there are times where we, we will make vows. We will vow to tell the truth in court. We will vow to make a lifetime commitment to our spouse. Right? We vow when we're baptized publicly to follow the one who saved us. Babies can't make those vows, by the way. When you ma- oh, Look, we, we have a church covenant agreement back there. That is a list of vows that we make to one another before the living God. And it befuddles me how easily those covenant vows are broken by those who stand in this very building and make them. God has no pleasure in fools who make vows with their mouth and do not follow through. Verse 4, God has no pleasure in fools. Derek Kidner, in his um, work on Ecclesiastes, said this, This is as quietly crushing a remark as any in the book. Verse 6, Let not your mouth lead you into sin. And do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? For when dreams increase and words grow many, there's vanity. But God is the one you must fear. Note the messenger here that he's talking about, likely in context, would be a priest in the temple under the old covenant. It's used that way in Malachi. So this is, this is saying, you know, don't make a rash vow with your mouth and then run to the priest crying, make atonement for me to free me from this vow. That's the idea. And that is a flippant attitude towards God has caused one with a big mouth to make a vow, he or she, does not carry out. Notice, why should God be angry at your voice? Now, this person would say, what voice? I didn't really mean it. I didn't really mean it. Priest, make atonement for me. It wasn't really meant. And then, God, take away the work of your hands. In other words, we must not renege and make excuses that we did not understand that which we were saying. That's that's the point. Because this according to the text here, may arouse God's displeasure and he take away the very thing you're keeping for yourself. 
What do you do to Ananias and Sapphira under the new covenant? Hey, sold this piece of land. Hey, everybody in the church, I just want you to know, uh, you know, the wife and I, you know, we have this piece of land and we sold it. We're going to give it all to the Lord. Praise the Lord. And then they kept back. God didn't demand them to offer it all. And then God struck them dead. So instead uh, of speech that is vain, we're to listen to God's word. Instead of uttering many words in prayer for the sake of many words, we ought to instead be, be thoughtful in thinking about what we're going to say. Instead of rash vows and empty talk, in your vow making, you just don't vow at all if you're not going to follow through. That's the wisdom here in Ecclesiastes. And if you do vow, just be sure carry it out. So what we're, what we're being taught here is um, excessive, excessiveness in words, in worship, and even in fellowship, is vanity. It's empty. You know, there always seems to be the fool who has something to say about everything. Years ago, I worked with a guy. I don't care what the subject was. He was a master of the subject, so he thought. Everything. And even, even if you speak little, with just a few words, if they're merely formalistic, that also is vain. It's vain repetition. So in, in summary of all his counsel, he provides a solution to all this. Very simple solution. The solution to formalism, the uh, answer to, to wordiness and rashness, um, empty vow-making, the answer is simple. Awe and reverence for the one true God. And that is fear God. Verse 7, fear the Lord. So verse, t- verse 7 tells us what we should do. This is, by the way, the conclusion of the whole book of Ecclesiastes. Fear the Lord. So we're given a taste of the book's ending here in chapter 5. You know, Charles Bridges, again, he defines the fear of God as this. The grand fundamental of godliness. Fearing God. So to fear God is just to correctly recognize him as who he is, right? Is mighty and majestic. He's in heaven, we're on earth, and he's been building upon that since verse 2. This then concludes with the wisest saying in the entire book of Ecclesiastes. As, uh, after all, Solomon once said that the fear of the Lord is the, the beginning of wisdom. So to close, T.M. Moore in his work on Ecclesiastes entitled Ancient Wisdom When All Else Fails. He's written a poetic paraphrase of these verses, and Philip Ryken actually cites this. That's where, I, that's where I got it. He said this, The way to get right with God before we go to worship is very simple. Here's an applicable point for me and all of you together before we go into worship in 17 minutes. The right way to get right with God before worship is simple. The right way to worship is to be honest with Him about our hypocrisy and all our other sins, and ask him to forgive us for Jesus' sake. Is that simple? That is wisdom. To confess it, repent of it, and then say, Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable 
to you. Amen.